It's December 7th, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss this week's acquisition headlines. Three keys to bridging the valley of death. Get involved early, cut out the middleman, and pray Congress works. So Hondo Gertz here is saying, if you have awesome tech and there's no budget line for it, you know, it's going to take a while for the money to get there. So he likes to talk about a cliff. A val- Instead of a valley of death, it's a cliff, right? The va- it's a cliff of death because you have your cool commercial tech you have your IRAD, you have your SIBR. Uh, once you prototype that thing, it's going to be two, three, maybe even four years before you get money for that in case everybody is on board. Uh, so that's, of course, this Valley of Death thing and funding flexibility. And then we also have Air Force Lifecycle Management Center, Lieutenant John Sean Morris, who basically said the same thing, right? The federal budget process is a fu- is foundational constraint. If you have a brilliant idea, my first opportunity is to get that into the fiscal year 25 program objectives memorandum. Just think about that. I'm in FY22 today, <laughs> right? So I think this is, we've been drumming this beat for a long time, but um, it's good to see that as, uh, you know, there's kind of an echo chamber going on that this is a real problem. We can't wait multiple years to decide whether or not we're going to move on a certain technology and always stay multiple years behind what the leading tech is. So um, faster we can collapse those cycle times, get into that OODA loop. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been starting to think about the valley of death more as like obstacles of death personally. And, and just kind of thinking about like, sometimes you can, you can scrap together a little bit of money to get something going. Sometimes you can get some prototypes, but then it's like you face this big obstacle of trying to get like real R and D money to actually get it, you know, militarized and ready for fielding tested and ready to go. And then you face another big obstacle of trying to get procurement and, and all those decisions, you know, laid in um, and then get the right amount of procurement that, you know, makes business sense. So it's like, it's like you face these different obstacles and sometimes you can overcome a couple of small ones, but then like you just face this another one and you just can't get over it. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's continuing. So yeah, definitely agree. It's kind of crazy how far in advance you have to be on some of those, some of those things. I also liked uh, the other thing Hunter Garrett kind of brought up was that, the services were, um, you know, sometimes there's a disconnect made the point, but you got to think about both sides of, of the, um, of the equation here. It's like, you have awesome tech, there's no budget. Um, it's going to take you a while to get money, but then also the buyer is not always the customer. And so this idea of, yeah. uh, you, you need to get the, that acquisition as close as possible to the people who will actually use it. Um, and we oftentimes do rely on headquarter organizations and, uh, different things that sometimes can be disconnected from the user, uh, even though hypothetically they're supposed to represent them. So I think he's drawing on his SOCOM experience there and saying, you know, sometimes people think like, oh, this is perfect, exactly what the user wants. And, the, and it gets out there to the field and they go, no, nah, this is not a, at all what I want. So, yeah, I think that's another good point that was made. Yeah, it's like uh, healthcare, right? It's like, there's so many different people like the provider is different than the insurance company, which is different than, you know, the bill mm-hmm. payer. Like there's all these different like obfuscations of how that goes. And then you have certain companies like there's a surgical center in Oklahoma that is just like, we're not going to even take any insurance. Like here's the price. Every surgery we have, we have a sticker price for it. Just come in and do it. And it's actually cheaper because like the administrative work is like 50% mm. or more of all that cost, right? So people will like fly in from Canada just to go get stuff done. But yeah, there needs to be some kind of like a little bit better transparency into that system. I'm, I feel like, you know, you're always paying these Sherpas to kind of take you around, but um, there's got to be a better way. Clap some of that. Um, there's always going to be like an acquisition and then like the user, it doesn't make any sense, right? The guy fighting on a hill can't go procure his own guns, right? So there's always going to be some of that, but maybe. Yeah, I think it's just much. including some of those users. You can't, you're not going to get like, if you ask the opinion of every soldier, you're never going to get, never going to get anything done. But getting, getting those folks represented in more of those forms because user-centered design should be applicable to every acquisition. And it's like at least having some real users who have actually been out in the field in the last couple of years, <laughs> you know, not 20 years ago, but actually in the last couple of years, uh, maybe that's, maybe that's one thing that can be done. So the next one we got was kind of perplexed me, but here we go. Biden's new climate change rules would smack government contractors with a $604 billion bill. And that's B with a billion Washington Times. So under this proposal, companies that do more than 50 million in annual business with the federal government 
would have to establish carbon reduction targets in line with the Paris agreements. And so apparently no other country has done this, um, except for, you know, the United States is now proposing it. And this rule estimates, and so this, they're not even denying it, they're saying, we estimate that this will cost federal contracting industry $604 billion in implementation costs just the first year, and then $442 billion annually after that. Yeah, so I actually went to the went to the rule because I I I was like, this this sounds a little crazy. So what was basically proposed? And this is once again, this is a far regulation. So I'm still kind of curious about how OTs will deal with this. But um, but yeah, basically is that they have to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions and financial risks. And by the way, the SEC is actually going to apply this to uh, uh, publicly traded companies, and they actually have higher requirements. So this is not just uh, not just government, but SEC is going to be coming out with stuff, but yeah, the other, so they have to come they have to identify their risks and then they have to set science-based uh, targets. There's nothing about implementing those targets though. So everything I looked at, if you're a major contractor or a substantial contractor, there's, there's different rules for the, the two different levels, but it's basically, you just have to like identify and publicly disclose your greenhouse emissions for certain things. And then you have to set targets, but you don't actually have to implement them. So I kind of feel I mean, I'm sure you're going to get publicly shamed or there's going to be some something that comes after this to say you haven't done anything about your plan. You haven't implemented your plan. But the rule doesn't have anything about monitoring implementation other than it being publicly disclosed. So I don't know where the $604 billion comes in. If Is that if they implemented every single plan to meet the targets? I, I think that might. Yeah, that that's what I'm like thinking. What it would be, Whereas right. company, I think most companies would probably get away with just disclosing what they're doing setting targets and then, you know, maybe doing a tiny bit of work here and there and like whatever, like the calling it a day. I mean, it sort of sounds that way. But, but it still seems like death by a thousand cuts. Like here's just another thing that you're going to have to go do that like piles up, you know, compliance costs. And one of the quotes here from Christoph Lenarchik was, uh, piling up compliance costs disproportionately hurts small businesses that have razor thin profit margins and less flexibility to spread these costs across many contracts. Eventually, increased cost of compliance gets passed on to the ma- American taxpayers. And my my view of this whole thing is like, okay, you're just like piling on more and more regulations, right? So you're restricting supply, you're making it harder for new entrants to come in, but then. Like on the other hand, the Biden administration is also pushing more and more money towards small business and especially uh, disadvantaged small businesses. So this is just another classic government thing, right? The government restricts supply, subsidizes demand. So you have more and more dollars going after the same suppliers who are not going to ramp up their production because it doesn't make sense for them. And you just get higher and higher costs. I mean, that's just right. Like I, I think it depends on how it's implemented. I mean, I also think this could be not that burdensome, right? If you're an IT company um, and your mission costs are basically because you consume electricity for your equipment, you can probably do some pretty quick modeling to say, yeah, here's here's our emissions. You know, even if it reaches that level. So I think this really starts to get into to to, to companies that maybe have you know a lot of transportation or they have um, some significant. Uh, uh, you know, factories, you know, manufacturing facilities and things like that. So I, I don't know. I, I'd like to see, I'd like to see how this goes because it is important. You know, we, we have to, we have to deal with this problem and there's no easy way of doing it. So a little bit of this is messaging to say, Hey, we're doing the best we can, you know, to the world so that other countries, you know, do follow America and, and they do follow, you know, they see this, this could be a model for, um, you know, for other countries. So I, I want to support it, but I also think it's going to be, we have to find easier ways for companies to be able to, to, to uh, identify what their emissions are through, you know, standard modeling techniques. Um, like, yeah, this many people, this much office space. Okay. Yeah. This is probably my emission. Um, and then, you know, then also maybe there's some grants down the road to say, Hey, if you, you know, get this lead, uh, lead standard certification, uh, you know, maybe the, maybe the government gives you a, gives you a grant for, for achieving that or something. Like maybe there's some monetary incentive too that can come into play. So. I don't know. That's, I agree with you. More, more, more compliant stuff is is not always uh, the right answer. But. but also, if you're not implement, if it's just like disclose your thing and don't do, you don't have to do anything about it. It it's is virtue yeah. signaling to a degree, or right, and then or you're actually going to use that as the mechanism that you're going to come in with, 
And then, okay, let's just call, let's just say they're like five times too high. It's a hundred billion dollars a year. Like, well, where's that money coming from? Right. <laughs> like that's a lot of yeah, money. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Um, Next up is Andorra raises $1.48 billion in a Series E funding round. And that's from Andorra itself. Andorra Industries today announced the funding, valuing the company at $8.48 billion, nearly doubling the company's previous valuation in June 2021. And so they also nearly doubled their team size from 700 at the start of 2022 to 1,100 today. I mean, that's, a, that's not really nearly doubling, but, you know. <laughs> We'll, we'll give it to them like 60, 70%. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, right? Because lots of companies I'm sure are struggling to get funding. And here's a pretty big announcement. Like the aerospace and defense companies are kind of able to get those funding rounds. Whereas like the, the big tech companies are kind of laying off people left and right. So um, it's pretty interesting. It might, it's definitely, I think we've seen a big interest increase in terms of people caring about the aerospace and defense space, right? The A16Z they had there, American dynamism, whatever you want to, you know, throw on that, but you know, they're, they're bringing attention to it. Right. Um, and, and some of these companies. So, and then if there's more layoffs from these tech companies, there's a lot of talent that could be kind of flowing into some of, mm-hmm. into our space, right. The defense space. So I think, that's yeah, all, that is, all that great. is very exciting. Like I love to see talent move from Facebook where they're probably like, developing some stupid algorithm, you know, to actually like coming and solving a, a war fighting problem. Like that is just like incredibly exciting. So I do hope we can attract, um, you know, attract some of that talent. Um, you know, the, the one thing I did, did kind of take away is that the, this funding came from multiple VC firms. So it was, it wasn't like a single thing. There was, yeah, yeah. I was, like I was, a dozen was of kind them. of surprised, but I guess it makes sense for that, for that amount. That's like kind of a lot. Well, they need, right? Because with a defense company, they know the compliance is huge. They know the timeline's huge. They know there's yeah, this quote the valley of death. Yeah. So it's like, you hear about them, you need to build up a war chest. You can't like do the same thing where it's like two, ten, thirty million $10, 30 million in these rounds. It's like, you got to build up a big thing and kind of go all in. On yeah. And it does make sense. I mean, honestly, if you look at some of the things that Andrew's gotten in the last uh, couple of years, you know, a hundred million dollar contract with the Australians for undersea vehicles, you know, they, they got three yep. new product lines out for loitering munitions, a new. I think it was a 50 million with Australia and 100 million with the counter UA. Oh, uh, the article had said 100 million right. contract for co-funding de- design development. Oh, so maybe, I don't know, maybe they got 50 million of the Sweet. co-funding, but um, maybe the contract for a total was 100 million. But yeah, then, they, you know, they got the uh, the C- C4 platform that they're trying to, that actually is being used um, operationally. Then they have the special operations, uh, almost a billion dollar contract for counter UAS. So yeah, they you know pretty compelling, um, pretty compelling progress. I could see how there it probably wasn't a big sell, honestly, for this. Just seeing the potential that they have. And the other thing is, I think that has to play into this is the fact that you look at um, Congress and you see there's total bipartisan support for keeping military funding high and increasing it. So. Uh, the, the, that that has to be a good yeah. signal is that this isn't something that's just going to go away. We're, we're going to be spending big numbers. Yeah, there was at the Reagan National Defense Forum, someone was kind of saying um, from an industry point of view or Wall Street view that defense mm-hmm. can be one of those black swans, right? Where like all of a sudden a whole bunch of money could be going there. So um, they're they're willing to kind of dip their toes in in a different way than maybe they had in the past. But it's interesting here, right? $8.48 billion um, valuation for Andoral. And I don't know what their revenues are in this past year. Maybe it's a billion dollars. I, I don't think it's at a billion dollars. But when you look at, for example, HII, the largest shipbuilder, uh, they are $9.5 hmm. billion dollar valuation. And they got basically $9.5 billion. In yeah, revenue, and lots of right? big orders <laughs> so, on the books for oh. the foreseeable future. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sixty yeah. billion dollar backlog. I think it is. So it's just interesting that that those valuation differences and can they live up to it? Will will they be able to like continue making margins that make the whole structure work? Because I mean, here's billions of dollars going into defense tech. That's private capital. There needs to be an ROI. Yeah, I find those valuations to be kind of pretty hokey. I mean, if you look, um, you know, just just following the uh, 
whole Elizabeth Holmes story and everything and just like how they were valuing that, that company and just like astronomical numbers and stuff. So I think some of these Silicon Valley evaluations, I, I yeah, yeah, pretty questionable, but, but yeah, no, at least, you know, at least it's good to see money rolling into uh, VCs being as committed as they are to, uh, to defense. I mean, it's great. So it's what we need. Well, think about this. Um, I, I just pulled up Palantir here. They're, uh, market cap, they did get up to like 30 billion and they've had a little rough going with interest rates, but 14.7 billion is their market cap now. And they've been around since like 2004. And Enduro is more than half of that. And they started back in 2017 ish mm-hmm. yeah. timeframe, 2017 18. So, you know, it looks like this whole sector is accelerating a little That's bit. Good. And speaking of that, operational expendable hypersonics and the race for reusability from Aerospace America. And this is Liz Stein writing here. And she's kind of talking about, of course, the tight tolerances, exquisite systems. It's really difficult, low volume to do these hypersonic kind of things. But investors or innovators are rising to the challenge. And she named a few companies, but she found that over $365 million in private capital has flowed into hypersonics in the past two years. So that's pretty big, you know, like the Department of Defense is still the quote unquote first mover here. But when you look at that, that list of 14, right, um, emerging tech areas that USDRE is interested in, and they say like 11 or 12 of them are really led by industry, whereas directed energy and hypersonics is led by department, you know, maybe five to 10 years from now, we'll, we'll be singing a different tune. Right? I don't know, maybe. No, it is kind of interesting it's that interesting. we really thought that, um, hypersonics was this uniquely military domain but you know there actually are some you know huge commercial uh you know not at the not at the high end of hypersonics but you know there is a desire to have faster air travel uh to be able to you know ship cargo you know different places where you need it so there are commercial applications and you know hermias and some of those other you know companies are are showing that so yeah it's good it's nice to see something like hypersonics that we wouldn't have thought of having a big commercial uh, interest, you know, helping to solve some of DOD's challenges because we're behind the power curve. We need their help. (laughs) Um, One of the things that I did see in there, one of the things that um, the challenges where a lot of this money is going to is they talked about these, uh, you know, tight tolerance systems that require on, you know, really low volume, time consuming manufacturing for thermal protection. So these thermal protection systems are really driving, uh, some of the some of the real technical challenges on the on the uh, hypersonic side, but there's all these companies like Orbital Composites and FGC Plasma, Black Lattice, who are all working Atlantic Six uh, in Atlanta. They're all working to to kind of help solve this. So uh, pretty interesting to see how you know all you have you actually have multiple players in that sector trying to help solve uh, some of these key challenges. Um, which no doubt, if that gets solved, it'll be something that could be directly applicable to, uh, you know, to the, to the missiles that are being developed. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if like Atlanta becomes like this hypersonic yeah, be hub, cool. you know. Um, Army is getting world's largest metal 3D printer. Here's what it will print. And well, that's going to be hulls. <laughs> so it's called the jointless hull large format tool. Uh, once active, the printer will be used to print a spectrum of vehicle hulls, any vehicle carrying warfighters. And so the printer size will eliminate the need to print smaller metal parts and then weld them together, creating the seams and joints that create weak spots. So, of course, if you just had like this big monolithic 3D printed hull, it's just going to be way, not not just easier to sustain, but just way more survivable as well. And at 30 feet long, 20 feet wide, 12 feet tall, the Projects funding tops $45 million. So that's not an insignificant, uh, you know, investment there. But they're really going to have to scale that up if they want to start, you know, getting holes out at scale through this thing. But I think it's showing the future. You know, as we talked about with autonomy, um, three like additive manufacturing, some of these things, they're just going to happen, right? Uh, we sh- the department just needs to kind of have a little bit of vision. And yeah, I will that. say on the Air Force side, I can't really speak for them, but the Air Force Sustainment um, Office, um, they, rap- I'm sorry, the Rapid Sustainment Office, yeah, they actually have rapid been doing a, office, a, yeah. a lot of work on the side to, you know, maintenance and 
not, I don't think as much on the production side, but but they there ha, there have been a lot there has been a lot of money actually going into um, added manufacturing and three D printing and stuff. Um, so, but but this I think yeah for sure is the is one on the larger scale. I mean thirty feet long, twenty feet wide. I mean you could you could actually you could actually build out quite a few combat vehicles with that. I mean that's a, that's a, that's pretty large. So um, it would be interesting to see how much this actually reduces the the manufacturing time and cost. But one of the, one of the things I took away from the, from the article was just that process. So it looks like you know the metal metal is brought very close to the melting point, but not quite. Instead, they're laid down in highly malleable solid state layers that are then shaped and formed. So kind of interesting. I kind of thought it was just like almost you know just be molten metal that would just be thing, but it's actually they make it soft enough they can make uh, basically manipulate it and they shape and form it. And they have a five axis milling head that basically allows it to sort of uh, create the shape. So anyway, kind of an interesting process there, but they can use multiple metals, aluminum, steel, and titanium using that approach. So the, the applicability to lots of different types of uh, systems is, yeah, definitely there. So be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. The number of different types of materials it mm-hmm. seems to be just growing all the time. There's just so many different types of AM machines out there. Um, it's kind of bewildering, but also like, man, you could just see a whole different paradigm where you, you have like people at the tactical edge, you know, 3D printing parts and like sending back license or royalties or even they reverse engineering or whatever. Um, and just the uptime is just crazy high relative to, you know, oh, I ran out of this and I need to re- repair the whole assembly, even though there's just like a pin yep. here that I need to change. And It'll be two years before I get it back. You know, it's like we got to get out of yeah, that. No, absolutely. There's yeah, so much, uh, so much potential there for the military. More drones for Ukraine. Belgium to supply UUVs. That's underwater unmanned vessels um, or unmanned underwater vessels to Kiev after testi- tasting success against Russian military targets. So the Belgian government is providing a military aid package for those UUVs, as well as portable labs. And 10 underwater drones from ECA Robotics Belgium are included in this package, and they can locate all underwater threats, including mines and surveillance gear. And so, of course, we talked about this. Ukraine is apparently building its own pretty, you know, low-cost and I guess they're loitering UUVs. I don't know what you call them in that respect, right? Yeah. But suicide UUVs. Uh, it's just sad to me, right? That like Belgium is getting in on this and like the US has nothing to say. Well, Belgium. we did send them, we did send them some stuff early. If you remember, we did send them some uh, uh, unmanned, unmanned. Yeah. Yeah. Some UUVs. But, yeah. 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 Oh, I, yeah think it was, I think well, it was from, I oh, forget what go. company it was, but uh, yeah, they, we did send them something. But yeah, you're, you're right. It, it, if you look at these, though, they're not that impressive. They almost look like lawnmower engines. They're fairly small, and I think they just uh, go around and detect mines and, and things like that. So they're they're yeah, yeah, like yeah. So stuff. it's it wasn't as impressive as that. when I went to look at it. I kind of expected a little bit more out of it. <laughs> it literally does look like a lawnmower engine. Um, but pretty interesting that. Apart from the UUVs, which it's great that that Belgium's getting in there. Like, did you read the rest of the package, the A package? It's like such a hodgepodge of things like combat training, close range artillery, fire support, mine clearance, sniper training, reconnaissance, infiltration, communication systems. <laughs> it's like a close air support training. Like it's uh, it's quite the hodgepodge of uh, training. <laughs> Anybody who wants to give something to yeah. Ukraine, come in on it, you know, like. Who's, who's the good you, idea? I think Ukraine is. So we'll take what you, whatever you want to offer them. That. <laughs> I'm, no doubt. But, um, you know, I, it would be nice for the U.S. to, like, someone's going to sell it to them. I think we talked about this, right? If, if, uh, if someone else is selling a technology, you know, on the FMS market and we have something like that, it should be, I, it, that should just yep. pass ITAR, yep. you know? There's no reason to just hamper our own military industrial base and the ability to scale things up just for no reason, just because we we have some presumption that if we can do it, no one else can do it. And if they can't see what we're doing, then they will never be able to do it. It's like, that's not the way. Yeah, it's a classic anymore. thing. But it's a similar analogy is like, 
when classified information has been known to be compromised and the enemy has it, but people in the military still can't see it because it's classified. It's like, it's just like, so actually the enemy has like more information than people that should, should have access to it. So it's like, it's really similar. It's like our allies, like our allies are already like developing what we have. It's like, we don't always have like some super special sauce on every single thing. But we're still like, no, we can't. We can't sell it to you. We, it's like, <laughs> I don't know why we why we do that to ourselves. It's hard to understand. Bill Greenwald, he he told a story of just like he was talking to someone in like France, and he was like, the guy said, "What is ITAR? ITAR is the thing that keeps the United States from knowing how far <laughs> behind it really is on military tech." I'm like, oh, that's that's sad. That is sad. <laughs> All right. Navy requests concept for a tritable mothership for unmanned systems. The U.S. Navy has issued a request for information for concepts for an attritable unmanned mothership to cost effectively deliver a large number of UXVs unmanned systems. So I guess those are more likely USV surface vessels and underwater vessels, but maybe they'll also have some aerial vehicles there too, um, to forward locations in contested environments. And then here's the real kicker. The it's 2022 right now, right? We're, we're coming in on 23, but the Navy's aiming to award, to award the design and construction by mid-2026 with delivery of the first AUMS within 24 months of contract award. So it's kind of funny. This is like, well, let's just sit around and think about things for four years, and then I want you to deliver it within two. You know, So I guess companies will have to kind of start getting on IRAD. It's kind of like a signal for IRAD. It's kind of like a signal that, hey, Let's get our budgets lined up and everything. But the timeline's just... Well, I, I have to imagine part of it is they're not going to have any USVs because they... <laughs> they're, yeah, well, they're, I mean, I, <laughs> it kills me. Because 2025 is yeah, the earliest you can... Yeah, they don't have any money in the those, current so. budgets, barely any money other than the UULV and... Um, but it's not going to be a UMV or U, it's not going to be a large or medium sized vessel, right? It's going to be like those Razorback things. It's going to be like the Devil Rays or like sail drone type things, right? You're not going to like unload one of those, you know, ghost ships from a. From well, the, but I view the mothership as more of a, you know, know, almost like a tender. You know what I mean? It, yeah, it could, you could have some of the smaller ones, but more of like um, it, it has enough supplies to replenish some of the, the larger USBs. So hopefully, yeah, point. you know, uh, I, maybe the Navy is just thinking like, we don't have a need for this because we're not going to have enough, we're not going to have a large enough fleet and things like that. But um, yeah, anyway, hopefully, uh, hopefully they'll get, and they should get some good interest. They've, they got really good interest on the other U- USB programs. And so hopefully you have Astral and, you know, uh, Finit, Finit, Finitech and, you know, some of these different companies coming in with, with good ideas and. Get something out fast, yeah. So even though it's going to take them this long to get to the award, hopefully they uh, that twenty four months is realistic. Yeah, the, you put this up on LinkedIn, and my comment back was just like, "Dude, we're retiring amphibs like LSDs yeah. all yeah. the time. Just take one of those damn things and experiment on it. We have it. It is probably roughly the right shape and size to do a lot of this stuff." Just yeah. do it now. You're totally right. You're talking about, yeah. you know, and then the clean, sh- we could do the clean sheet stuff at the same time in parallel and it comes out later. Yeah. You would learn so much. I mean, honestly, for. we're going to talk about Turkey and their drone carrier, but that's exactly what they did. They did. Yeah. They just, they just re, re, uh, you know, reformatted, uh, you know, an existing vessel. You're right. We have, we have LPDs, we have, you know, merchant Marine ships. There's probably a lot of different options that we could actually, uh, could actually go after for this as, you know, as a way to learn, right? Like try it out with the smaller systems. Like you said, like all those things that are out there with task force 59 and, uh, and then build that into the requirements for the, for the, for the big, for the big, uh, for the new mothership. Yeah. Um, that's a great idea. Yeah. And so Turkey does have their future drone carrier, which they're kind of converting a landing helicopter dock ship called the TCG Anadolu. I'll see if I said that right. Um, and then they're testing their, they, it was first launched in 2019 and they're uh, testing it now. And they're actually going to have another one that they're going to be doing with this. And it's not for, it's not the same thing, right? They're not going to be doing UUVs and USVs. It'll be unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, 
but they want to get like their new TB3 remotely piloted aircraft off of that. And of course, a lot of countries are going to Turkey for the TB2 right after it's a reasonable success. I guess it's kind of like up in the air um, how successful some of those kind of long range uh, but lower capability types of uh, unmanned systems have been. But since they're buying them, there must be utility. Yeah, well, the TB3 has is like twice the payload of the TB2. So uh, that's going to be attractive. Um, and it has like folding wings and stuff to be able to land on these things. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the other capabilities that it has, but, uh, definitely seems like a, seems like a bump up. And then they, I love, I love how Turkey's kind of continues to be forward, forward leaning here. I mean, they have another, uh, another one in development, a low observable called the, uh, Kizolima or whatever, if that's pronounced right, a low observable, also carrier capable, supersonic unmanned combat area vehicle under development. So, um, I guess that's their answer to CCA, um, but but yeah, they're they're definitely leaning forward on uh, uh, on the UAV front. So yeah, it'd be interesting. Now that's a good case study. There, what is Turkey doing in their acquisition system, and how are they either empowering people or how are they just moving fast, like seemingly faster than the United States in many respects, with far 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 fewer resources and far less, I guess, like engineering and personnel talent relative to what I imagine exists. I, I think States. part of it, just from talking with the guys that were on the F-35 program, is this has been a priority for them to build up their defense, their organic defense sector. And so Turkey wants to build their own fighter jets. They want to build a lot of the same things like the U.S. does. Um, but they, they've had challenges. And so it's, you know, they've had some setbacks. And I do think part of this, like you, you've written about in your blogs before, about, you know, they're picking the best options that are available to them because they do have, you know, funding constraints, you know, uh, industrial capacity constraints. And so I think some of the reason why they're focused on this is this is doable. This is something they can scale. This is something they can get after in advance. And so I think it's a little bit of that is like we go after the most exotic, expensive things because we have our huge budgets. Uh, but they're being a lot more practicable, practical about, you know, what's uh, what they can achieve. So. I don't know. That's my, my theory. Well, it's a re- giving people too much money is a bad thing. And we've seen that Tom Coons had a good um, set of articles. That was just like, when you look at defense programs, like we always expect them to ramp up super fast on funding and they just can't, it's just too much money. And then they eventually just, you know, take much longer and have cost growth on the back end. But maybe some of that was because like, we did 10 years of paper plans. And then when they start, we think that they're able, like, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. And it's like, uh, did those paper plans actually help you them do the job that actually needed to be done? You know, so maybe like that's kind of like the startup philosophy, right? You, you can't like put too much money into something, but you got to recognize when time, when it is time to start pouring quote unquote mm-hmm. rocket fuel on them, you know? Yeah. All right, next one we got. China accelerates Mighty Dragon stealth fighters production to counterbalance U.S. supremacy. And so this is about the the J-20 that's been uh, coming out. And they're saying that there's more than 140 J-20s, possibly more than 200 of them. They're ramping up uh, a new pulsating production line for, and their domestic engines um, have, have also been kind of been ramping up too, trying to pull that away from Russia. What is pulsating production? Do you I think it's just talking about once you get the... Uh... I think Lockheed Martin actually made the point here. Once you get the the uh, uh, the some of the components in there, and you can do the electronic mate and alignment, then you can then you can start to uh, be more dynamic with it. So I think that's what you're talking about because the, they mentioned in the article that their uh, mate and alignment stations were all vertically aligned with movable platforms, and that allows for the completion of the work in shorter time. So I think that's what they mean by pulsating. Oh, cool. Well, the J-20, it's not so, uh, I guess, cheap, though, because the J-20 costs roughly U.S. $110 million to construct. And they're like, well, this is half the price in F-22. Well, we don't build F-22s. Uh, <laughs> F-35 is, what, $80 million, And then the engine is $15, 20000000 million. So we'll see about that. Um, it looks like it's a little bit cheaper than, or a little bit more expensive than F-35, maybe even a little bit more expensive than F-15EX. So I would be a lot more scared if, you know, 
they had a thousand of them already and they cost $50 million to produce. That would scare the hell out of me, but you know, they're still way up the learning curve. Right. So um, they could potentially drop that cost a lot faster than an F 35 could. And F 35, I think the signals are that it might be getting a little bit more. Well, it especially will get expensive with some of the additional capabilities coming out of block four and D and, um, uh, tier three and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah that 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 cost is never never going to be close to what what it was you know a couple hours ago. But yeah, no, the J twenty. Um, I think I think they. I don't think this they've been producing them. I think it, I, I'd be surprised if there's as many as there are because my understanding was that they were they did not have a very robust production line, um, and so I think they're just getting there because they've uh, like when, when people have been monitoring them. There's like a group that monitors all the all the sorties that go near Taiwan and along the China coast. Like they've only seen like handfuls of J20s. So um, so maybe they're all internal to the country and they're hiding out. But yeah, it's a little bit surprising that the estimate was that high. Um, yeah, we, we I kind of thought there was only like handfuls of them. But but yeah, maybe they're maybe they're ramping up. And so once they get those production lines fully, you know. Uh, fully ironed out you could see that cost come down especially if they're not doing a lot of mods to it well so which which may hurt hurt them but i guess we'll see how, how they do that but yeah the the biggest piece is that ws15 engine right now they've moved into ws10 they can actually produce ws10 and, and not use the uh, russian engines but the ws15 will be a huge leap forward um it's going to have much greater endurance and flight performance uh, fuel efficiency power all that stuff it's it's going to be a, a big leap forward so they're still it's it's been in testing, but it hasn't um, it hasn't actually gone into production yet, as far as, as far as we know. So that'll be something to watch out for because that will be a big improvement for the J twenty. The SecDef tells Congress to get a military budget done already from Military Times. So he's saying it's impairing our ability to hire the people we need to accelerate our effort to eradicate sexual assaults. And suicide, delay the need for investment in military infrastructure, including barracks and child care centers. I was surprised he didn't really talk about <laughs> weapons programs on this. You know, um, that's why I kind of put that in there. It's like, hmm, I, I see, you know, I, that might be a better signal to the public, though. You know, if you, if you want them to, like, put money into the budget, you know, talk about the things that kind of people can identify mm-hmm. with on the outside. But he said here the sec, uh, in his letter the department's operating with nearly 3 billion less a month in funding than they than they expected under the new fiscal 23 budget but of course again when we think about defense programs the problem is that the money is in the wrong buckets not necessarily that you just have 3 billion like 3 billion dollars less a month okay it hurts but from a really large top line it's it's kind of like a rounding error the real problem is i can't get no starts i can't make trade offs this program in its fit up was supposed to be ramping up after a milestone b Oh, now we're still pitter pattering, right? So, it. I I just felt like he, I think Secretary Austin was signaling to a different group than us, uh, right? Than what we would kind of want out of it. But um, it hurts the department nonetheless in many, not just acquisition spaces. It it hurts in. in well, I also think well. he may he may have been adding to an argument that's already been made. Like, uh, you know, the last few years, you know, even under Secretary, you know, Secretary Mattis. When he was a secretary, he he, he kind of came out hard and saying, you know, here's here's the impacts, and he went into like, here's the impact of production, here's the impact, you know, all these things. So I, I think part of it may be like oh, that story had already been told to some extent. I think the Hill knows how bad CRs are, but now he was getting more to like, now you're getting after people, now you're hurting people. So I I actually think he may have been pretty yeah. savvy there. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's true. Like. Whatever you think about them trying to hire 2,000 additional people to eradicate sexual assault and prevent suicide, ultimately, th- that, yeah, yeah. that's a bad look, right? Like, some of these things were really not, not no bueno. So, um, we'll let that one go, and hopefully that can get Congress over the line. But there's always, you know, no matter what it is, like, I don't think you can say these things and everyone will agree, but there will always be some political issue that someone's going to use to wrangle and like delay things. And I, to see ours continuing resolutions, they're just going to be, they're just structurally built into the system. I don't really know how you do that other than take some of the power out of Congress's hands because 
it's like a child in, in the cookie jar. It's like, no, the <laughs> like maybe Congress could be thought of as the parent, but really they're like the child here. Well, that's why I, you know, when we talk about portfolios, I, I still like the idea of appropriation by portfolio so that you, the polio, the or, polios, portfolios endure. And so if you go into a CR situation, if the funding from previous year was, was allocated against those portfolios, I don't think you'd have hardly any of the impacts. I think the problem is we have 1,700 PEs and you have to manage across them and across all the different appropriations within those PEs. So it, it makes it untenable. Uh, but actually, this I think CRs could be solved with portfolios to some extent. Matt, I am so with you, but <laughs> I was talking with some like comptroller types and, and some others that are very senior and I try to put this to them and they're just like, you ain't getting me on that. The money will still be in the wrong buckets. The CR will always be a problem. Portfolios cannot solve that. And I was like, I want you to explain this to me a little bit better. And maybe some of it is true, right? Because like, do you like in procurement, for example, if I listed out like Navy ships are already written into the appropriations law, so you'll never get that right. Unless you take that out. But even for like aircraft and um, missiles and, and stuff like that, like, can you really kind of like currently, if you even had a portfolio, would you be able to move those those dials um, or are there some authorities kind of sitting in there that would be like, nah, you can't actually trade off an F-35 for an F-15 because one line or the other or you, that that seemed like a good opportunity. I mean, some, some of that will be challenging and I think it depends on what's in a portfolio. But yeah, hypothetically, if you had a procurement portfolio that had multiple programs in it. Um, you would be able to trade off or at least honor, not even trade off, but honor the majority of the commitments, um, you know, based on what available funding you had. So, you know, maybe maybe the min sustainment rate or the most cost effective uh, approach was to fund one, you know, at a higher rate than the other. Um, yeah. So if it wasn't in that portfolio, I don't see I don't see why you couldn't do that. Now, there will be consternation because procurement is treated very differently, but at least. On the R&D side, even if we just talked R&D, um, that, that would do it because right. you have a lot of R&D programs today that you, they're at a point where they're ramping up. And so they, maybe they only got like 20 million last year and now they're going to 100 million and they have all this work in the backlog. They're ready to you know go out and, and do great things. And then they're constrained. If that program operated in a portfolio with a bunch of other ones um, and they were the ones ready to go and, and march out, they could at least get a much bigger chunk of money because it would be at the portfolio level and it wouldn't be, um, yeah, it wouldn't be so so hard to, to get them the funding. It's always going to be a trade-off though. CRs are always going to be a problem. I, I do agree with that mindset. I just think, I think they could be mitigated to a large extent if you, uh, yeah, if you had portfolios that had multiple things in them, it would just make it easier. Yeah, you, one guy's ready to ramp up and then another guy in your portfolio is making his way through, you know, DOT and E, and he doesn't need that money, but you're still th shoving six, five money at him. And of course he's going to take it and spend it, but you know, like, was that the most optimal allocation that, that could have been done? Yeah. Uh, exactly. uh, Palantir Lockheed Martin team up to modernize Naval combat system. And so this looks like the, the Aegis combat system uh, that Lockheed Martin has been doing since the 1960s, basically. Um, they are now looking to integrate that onto ships and containerize it with software that's agnostic to the hard, the, to the ship's hardware uh, and receive over-the-air updates rather than requiring complex import modernization periods. And so it's interesting here that we got Lockheed and Palantir kind of teaming up. Seems like it could be the future, but P Palantir's op Apollo platform can deploy, manage, and monitor software across multi-cloud environments and legacy on-prem data centers at various classification levels. So they probably did all the, you know, risk modernization framework, FedRAMP kind of stuff already. So Palantir is ready to go. My understanding was that Lockheed actually has been putting quite a significant amount of money into their own kind of software factory itself. But, you know, Palantir has been at this for a while. So maybe this helps them accelerate it. And I think it's, you know, kind of showing some of the future, right? Like this Valley of Death, we don't need to create a new program for everything. How do we take the programs that we already have and inject speed and software and other capabilities into them? And so 
be cool to see a lot more of this and understand a little bit more of exactly what they're doing. But, but yeah, I mean, Aegis is always kind of, or for a while has been a little bit at the front, right. With uh, the, the Aegis uh, common library and stuff like that. So they've already kind of been. Doing yeah. The yeah. The, the forge software factory is, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's still evolving and, and, and what have you, but, uh, but yeah, they've definitely been, they've had the right vision and they've put a lot of really good talent and, you know, good people, good people on that team uh, working that. So, yeah, I almost feel like the Palantir, I, I wonder how long this relationship will last because I almost sort of feel like part of it is Lockheed understanding the process. It's almost more processes than tech, it feels like, um, just how, because Palantir really, yeah. really is good at, at this kind of stuff. Um, that's why they've been so successful. So. So yeah, I wonder if this will be Apollo will be a long term kind of integrated piece of this, or uh, it will be it will play a role for a period of time until there's an organic capability that sort of replicates it. Um, so I guess that'll be interesting to see. But yeah, no, it's good to see good to see at least commercial you know good to see commercial tech kind of playing a bigger role. Um, like we're using commercial tech in a lot of different ways in these software factories, and in terms of like how they integrate open source and you know, some, some proprietary solutions, but you know, most of it's integrated uh, open source and custom software. So we do have a lot of commercial talent, but not at scale. So this is, I think one of those ones where you really see it at scale. All right. The last one we'll do here, U S effort to arm Taiwan faces new challenge with Ukraine conflict, U S government and congressional officers off officials fear that the conflict in Ukraine is exacerbating a nearly $19 billion backlog of weapons bound for Taiwan. And that's up from $14 billion last year. So we got another $5 billion added to the backlog. Um, by 2027, we'll have $50 billion or $100 billion in backlogs, right? Um, that's not going to help us necessarily. So it, it's kind of crazy to think about it, right? Like how much money is kind of being thrown at the, the industry and the supply chains. And they literally just cannot take it, right? Like we cannot get to three destroyers a year. Um, it's kind of crazy, but you know, Taiwan's complaining about it. Uh, Taiwan would like to request that the weapons, the U S sells to to Taiwan be delivered as scheduled says general Wang Xinglong, (laughs) vice minister of armaments. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, actually the, I think that a lot of those orders they placed that, that backlog is actually from 2019, um, is what I had read, uh, different, uh, different place. So they've been waiting quite a few years and, I don't know all the holdups, but FMS is can be a fairly slow process. Um, so that is pretty sad because they're not in a place right now where they want to be waiting for weapons. So yeah, definitely something something needs to be done here to, to break that logjam. Maybe they can be uh, be given some of the aircraft in the U.S. inventory, and then the new ones can come off the line and backfill or something. But yeah, clearly they're starting to feel pretty pressurized, and I yeah, I feel pretty bad that we're not we're not getting them stuff faster especially given how we accelerated our stuff to, for, to Ukraine, you know? Yeah. Well, when an invasion actually happens, it kind of focuses the mind a little bit, but people, one of the things that I think I read was, you know, folks, the, the Russian experts, you know, in the run up to the conflict, didn't think Russia was going to invade, but the defense people all thought it was going to happen and it might be a kind of a similar thing here where the China experts say, no, they're going to they're going to be smart. They're going to do the stranglehold. They'll, you know, not invade, but they'll try to make it a fait accompli. And the defense people like Davidson, right, um, he's like, it might happen. Right. And I don't really know what that like what to say about that. You know, I don't have a good feel on it. But like if you call it a coin toss, then you basically the military has to act as if it's going to happen. I don't think there's any reason that the department of defense should you know say oh well we can pitter patter or it's it's okay that it takes this much time to get some weapons over there um and i think most of the folks at the department of defense are speaking in the right way right like bill plant is kind of on fire about this uh but yeah so i don't know where i was going with that but we gotta i think we gotta treat it like like this thing could happen and we gotta we got it. Well, there's also a deterrent effect. I mean, by us, yeah, by us, you know, by us getting this stuff over there, it makes it the calculus, it ups the calculus for China to to see, oh yeah, okay, they're getting stronger. I guess one of the questions though is, 
are all these orders, I mean, the F-16s, you know, no doubt they need to have air superiority and try their best to maintain that. But um, but are these uh, weapons that are being delivered, are they going to be the right ones? If you look at some of the articles on, you know, Taiwan should really yeah. be adopting a, uh, you know, a hedgehog kind of strategy. Maybe they should be ordering, uh, you know, more uh, anti-ship missiles and things like that and more... Uh, uh, more defensive weapons that can be long range artillery or something. So I don't know the whole list of weapons, but yeah, it does make you think like Taiwan has been ordering a lot of the same stuff, like almost like full scale, like war, like an army kind of, uh, you know, the U S army fighting the Russians kind of thing. And it does make you wonder, maybe they should reevaluate and say, well, if you can't get these weapons to me fast, maybe I can trade out and give me a bunch of javelins and a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of stingers and uh, L rasms, you know, I'll take those instead. So I don't know. I I know I know I know. Maybe then none of those would be faster. You know, we don't even have enough like one five five rounds for Ukraine. Oh, did you see though that they uh, they are like doubling? Uh, Doug Bush came out and said they're doubling uh, the uh, production of those. So that was good. I posted up that on LinkedIn, but so that was good to see that they're. Yeah, no that that's important. But like some of them, you see these things. Um, and you and they're just like, yeah, we're one, we're running. We're I know, running one I know. Shift we, at this what point. I know, like, I know. What? <laughs> what I do know. you it's mean like, you're running like, one what, shift? Yeah, we're, we're not. But it's but everyone says it's a demand signal problem, which basically is government. Can you credibly put money to this thing so I can make an investment? Because I'm not going to make that investment be held left. Yeah, I think the executives of the defense companies have been very clear about like, this needs to be long-term. So I think build a plan set on, like if for no other reason, you need the multi-year contracts just to put the government in in the place where they're credible with industry. <laughs> because if you just say, oh yeah, we're going to fund that across the FIDIP at this level, they know better. They're like, we've seen this story, uh, you know, 10 times in the past, you know, past couple, a couple of decades. Um, you, you say this and then like those numbers change dramatically year to year. So yeah, there's multi-year contracts would actually commit to government. And I think that's absolutely what's needed. But it would also take away power from the appropriators. <laughs> so we'll see what happens there. And hopefully none of, I mean, all the urgency to do something for for Taiwan and people can look back and say, oh, well, that was a waste, but we just don't know, right? Like the deterrent effect, like maybe that urgency actually deterred something that otherwise would have happened. And we can all go happily merrily about our lives, Mm -hmm. but that's the point. Like, right. That is the point not to um, kind of say all these things, talk with a big, you know, have a big, big voice, but not carry the stick. Right. Um, And then China decides, well, maybe I can actually do this better than Russia. Maybe I learned from their mistakes and this is the way to do it. Right, systems destruction warfare or whatever, um, but still, hundred miles is, and Taiwan is not exactly the closest thing. Um, so, anyway, yeah, we'll see. We will hopefully, uh, hopefully, it won't, won't be our worst uh, the, the the outcome, the worst outcome we can imagine. Yeah, hopefully, people can look back at you know Admiral uh, Davidson and just say. You were a more warmonger, right? Like that would actually be a yeah. I'm okay if that window is wrong and it's like never, yeah, never happens. <laughs> all right, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks, Thanks Matt. We'll talk to you next time.